You can have a hit song, but if it's mixed poorly, it won't feel right. It yeah. won't feel good. It won't make you want to dance. That all comes in the mix. Hi, I'm Sean Perrin, and you're listening to episode 78 of the Clarinet Podcast, the show where I discuss all that's new and neat with clarinet with the neatest people in the industry. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Spencer Cheen, who is a multiple award-winning mixer, producer, engineer, and musician. In addition to having contributed to multi-platinum selling pop songs, Spencer also works with jazz artists and everything in between. In fact, I had the great opportunity to work with Spencer while recording my album in 2015. We discuss all elements of recording in great detail, from choosing a microphone on a budget and which kind you might want to pick, to treating your room, and why Spencer thinks that mixing is like painting with sound. The Clarinet Podcast is brought to you in part by its listeners. If you'd like to learn how you can support the show directly on an ongoing basis, see clarinet.com support. The show is also brought to you by our season sponsor, Daddario Woodwinds. Thank you so much for listening. Sanding, shaping, balancing. For centuries, mastering your instrument meant mastering these crafts too. But now, D'Addario is refining craftsmanship for the 21st century by refining their reeds and mouthpieces with the world's most innovative techniques, so you can spend less time sanding, shaping, and balancing, and more time perfecting your own craft. To learn more about the new era of craftsmanship from D'Addario Woodwinds, visit D'Addario.com woodwinds. Spencer Cheen. Uh, Spencer, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Sean. So you're one of the few but fortunate guests who are not actually clarinet players, but uh, you're going to have your own feature episode on the show here. Um, but you are a classically trained musician, and you've studied um, violin, I believe, right? Yes, I grew up playing classical violin. Absolutely. And you're also a drummer, uh, mixer extraordinaire, amazing engineer. Um, why don't you just give uh, the listeners a quick rundown of kind of what you currently do and some of your past achievements, and then we'll get right into the Talk about recording. Sure, sure. So uh, I guess all well, the quick lowdown is I, I started on classical violin when I was four. And I played that until I was, you know, kind of a, in my mid-teens. But when I was in my mid-teens, violin wasn't very cool. But drums were. <laughs> and I obviously wanted to attract girls. So, um, yeah, I switched to drums and, you know, was playing in rock bands. And I, I got into jazz music and was playing in the jazz band at school and everything. And just was obsessed with drumming and one of my first drum teachers, he had a home studio. And um, so I also kind of, while I was taking drum lessons, also got into, you know, recording. And with the way technology was going, you know, home recording was actually becoming affordable and available to people. Um, so I, you know, I had a very tiny setup and I would record my, you know, my my gigs, my friends' gigs and band practices or whatever. And my setup slowly grew and then I would be doing demos for for people for college applications and whatever. And it just kind of kept growing and evolving from there. And it eventually got to a point where 
and I, I still play drums, but it kind of got to a point where I, did it, I wanted to either get really serious about drums or really serious about recording. And I kind of decided that rather than going back to school and finishing my degree um, for jazz performance, I would, you know, instead put the money into like building a studio and more recording gear. And uh, yeah, I just kind of from there, I, I, I was kind of doing everything. I was, you know, engineering and producing and mixing for people. And as that kind of went on nowadays, I'm mostly just mixing for people. Um, and it's really my favorite part of the whole process. I am producing still a little bit for, for certain artists that I really enjoy and, you know, for certain styles of music that I really kind of, I guess, think I have a handle on, but, um, I pretty much mix every other genre for, for people. And it's great. Cause I'm, I'm working on a new song every single day. And, um, that keeps it very exciting for me. So we've worked with some amazing artists and you've also studied with some, some really amazing people. And even this summer, I know, for example, I'm a huge Radiohead fan and mm -hmm. you were studying in France there where mm -hmm. they recorded a moon shaped pool, which is their newest album. That's so right. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. I've, I've got to know. Well, there's this program called mix with the masters. And essentially what it is, is the guy who owns that studio, his son was an assistant for Michael Brower, who's a very famous mix engineer uh, in New York. And um, they, they kind of realized that nowadays, you know, a lot of these people coming up, they don't have the opportunity to mentor underneath someone like they did back in the 70s, 60s, 70s, 80s, even 90s, because there was a lot of big studios back then. Nowadays, a lot of those studios have closed down, so there's no, not really anyone to learn from. So he created this program where they would bring in some of the biggest engineers and mixers from around the world, fly them into the south of France in this gorgeous chateau where they have a studio in there, and then... Uh, you know, 10 to 15 students from around the world would apply to be a part of this program. You get to hang out with the master for the week and, you know, you get to eat with them, you get to drink with them, you're in the studio all day. They basically, they're an open book um, and you get to pick their brain about everything. So I've been very fortunate. I've, I got to do it three times actually. Really? Yeah. First time was with Manny Mariquin, who's kind of one of my ultimate mixing heroes. He, I mean, if you listen to, you know, radio, pretty much every second or third song you hear, he mixed. And I mean, he's been working with everyone back in the day, like in the in the 90s. He did a lot of the R&B stuff from Alicia Keys to uh, Erica Badu to Jill Scott. And now, you know, up, now he does a lot of pop, a lot of hip hop, you know. But pretty much anything popular, he's probably done it. And then I did it with Michael Brower as well, who... Uh, I mean, he came up mixing Aretha Franklin and like, you know, Luther back in back in the day. But then his career has been so long and, you know, he's kind of evolved. He he was also the guy behind Coldplay hmm. and a lot of kind of 90s, uh, 2000s singer songwriter, pop rock kind of stuff. He was kind of the guy. And then just recently when I did it, it was with Tony Maserati, who he was a New York based mixer. Now he's in L.A. Um and he kind of came up doing a lot of the hip hop stuff in um, New York, like, you know, in the 80s and 90s. Um, and I mean, he's also the guy behind almost every Beyonce record and um, Lady Gaga, Jason Mraz. I mean, even Tupac. Um, yeah, like, the, I mean, all these guys credits are, are insane. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I, I got to hang out with each of them for a week. Yeah. And, you know, it was amazing. Yeah, learned a lot. So, you know, you're using some words here, which I just want to sort of uh, define and, and make clear for the audience, because if you've never done a recording project, 
Um, it may not actually be clear sort of what the difference was. And I know that I even wasn't quite sure when I started. So engineer, mixing, uh, mastering, producer, right. like how would we kind of, in a nutshell, explain each of those terms? So I think it starts with engineering um, and recording. I mean, recording and recording engineer are kind of sometimes used interchangeably and they're the first step. So capturing the performance, you know, you need microphones, you need microphone preamps or, you know, console or whatever, and capturing what the artist does. Once it's captured, which is usually the, you know, the recording engineer's job or the engineer's job, then usually the producer's the guy, the guy who, you know, is saying, well, and he's involved in that process as well, uh, in the recording process, kind of helping direct the artists and the, the performance. But after the fact, you know, any editing you do or any comping or splicing or, you know, basically doctoring to the recording the engineer will usually do it or the producer will do it along with him but the, it's usually the producer's call and then after that it needs to get mixed so let's say in the case of well let's just say a basic rock band where there's two guitars a bass and drums there's going to be at least a guitar track another guitar track a bass track and then the drum tracks could be anywhere from you know three to twenty and by tracks, you mean different mics, basically. Different microphones yeah. that have been recorded. So in a multi-track session, you know, you load up Pro Tools or whatever it is, whatever program you're using, there'll be, 20, let's say, 20 different tracks. And you can mix and match and balance these different tracks together. And you can EQ them, meaning changing the tone. Like, they could be darker or brighter or more mid-range. You know, just like on an old car stereo, you know, you can turn up the treble or the bass. I mean, that's a very crude, basic form of it, but... Yeah. Um, and then there's compression, which is basically squeezing the dynamic range of things. And then you can use effects like delay, uh, which is essentially what it sounds like. You're just delaying the signal and having a re repeat of it or reverb, which, or some people say echo. Um, and basically these are all tools or like paintbrushes that I use when I'm mixing a song to make it come to life. Um, and again, these are like the most basic form of things and uh, just balancing the levels between things too i mean that's really the, the biggest thing and keeping in mind that a song is a moving thing it's not a static thing that never changes so the levels can change as the song progresses like mm -hmm. if anyone's played you know guitar hero the notes are constantly coming at you you know second per second and as a song develops you may want you know the volume of one thing louder at a certain section than another section and so the mixer's job is to really figure out what levels everything needs to be at, at at any given time, plus what tonality it has, if, if it's dark, bright, you know, the EQ of it, how compressed it is, how, you know, how much... Let's just stop with the, the mixing for a second, because I remember a session you did at, at a local music store called Long McQuaid here in Calgary, mm -hmm. and um, you talked a little bit about kind of in the mixing sometimes when, you know, for example, I think there was a guitar part that came in, and then another part entered and you brought back the guitar part in the mix. And it just seemed like such a classical or, or uh, musician type thing to do. Mm. Do you consider the mixing role to be almost like a musically active part of the... Yeah, it's funny because a lot of people, I think, think of mixers as super technical geeks. Mm -hmm. But for me, coming, from, coming at it from being a musician first, classical violin and drums, it to me is actually the most creative process as other than writing the song. Yeah. I think writing the song is a very, very creative process. I mean, performing is obviously creative too, but there's a lot of technical things you have to do. Mixing is the same thing. It 
there's a lot of technical things you have to know and you have to you you have to realize how to work them like your instrument but at the end of the day it is a creative process and you're really painting a picture it's yeah. it's closer to painting than anything actually i really? think painting with sound yeah you're painting with sound and you're painting with i mean in classical music yes it's more about recreating a sonic space and making it this believable performance mm -hmm. that engages the listener sometimes with pop music it's actually more about creating an emotion or creating a feeling that someone you, you don't know why that song is so catchy you don't know why you want to keep listening to it you may even hate that you want to keep listening to it but you you keep listening to it and you <laughs> keep hear it again yeah yeah i mean a lot of that comes in the the writing of the thing but the mixing process really is an extension of that because it is telling the listener, hey, you need to listen to this at this given moment. Hey, yeah. you should listen to this at this given moment. Or, I mean, even just as far as the groove goes for the song, like whatever the overall groove and uh, energy of the song is, that really comes down to the mix of it. Mm -hmm. You can have a hit song, but if it's mixed poorly, it won't feel right. It yeah. won't feel good. It won't make you want to dance. That all comes in the mix. Um, so for me, yeah, I forget who I was talking to, but maybe I'm going to trademark this one day, but to me, <laughs> mixing is like, it's like writing, but with emotions, textures and soundscapes. Um, and that's really what it comes down to. I'm, I'm painting this, this auditory image with, you know, and it's constantly evolving and I'm trying to evoke emotion in people as I'm doing it. So when you're listening to it, if, if it's a really sad song, if it sounds super punchy and bright and really big, it, it's probably not going to translate. You might want it to be dark and small and sad sounding. Whereas if it's a dance track, it's got to, you know, be banging. Yeah. And if it's a classical or jazz track, you, you just really want to kind of hopefully give the listener what the artist was intending to play and without altering it the point where it's like, well, this sounds like it's been, you know, doctor, doctor, yeah. you want to try to give the truest representation of what they've done, but in the most um, beautiful form possible. And, you know, some some classical recordings, you listen to them and they sound really far away. And that's one way of doing it. Whenever I do classical or jazz records, I always want to feel like I'm on stage with the band. I'm on stage with the artist, like I'm right next to them getting oh, it's almost like if you imagine VR. You're like in this world where you put on the headphones or, you know, your speakers and you're listening to this record and it's like, holy crap, I'm on stage with these people. Yeah. And that's, uh, you know, there's a lot of um, tricks slash tools you need to know how to use to, to be able to recreate that coming out of two speakers. Because if you think about any recording, you're trying to repli uh, replicate so many different frequencies and so many different instruments, you know, out of two speakers. Yeah. All the... All the... All the all the tracks have to be in the one yeah. kind of sound. So there's, the a, yeah, there's a lot of like, you know, know-how to get there. But at the end of the day, that's kind of my mindset is I want it. I want to make it seem like I'm on stage for a classical or jazz record. I'm on stage with them and I'm experiencing what they're doing right beside them. Yeah, there's different philosophies about that. And I do want to get into that further. But before we do that, we talked about production, um, the producer's role, I guess, the engineer, um, mixing, and now... The one that's most elusive, and I think the fewest people understand, is mastering, and mm -hmm. and that is the one 
here we're having a glass of wine. Yes, you can probably hear sorry. The wine pouring in the background here. This is one of the most relaxed uh, <laughs> interviews ever, I think. Well, <laughs> we're usually not in the same room because I'm usually talking to someone who's across the world and right. some, you know, and I'm just in my basement by myself. <laughs> right. So this is a lot more nice. fun. We get to yeah, be in person. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Okay. So mastering. So essentially, the the easy way to look at it is if mixing is you're in the forest and you're dealing with all these different trees and you're trying to, um, you know, you're, you're dealing with this one tree that's, and you got to trim it and this other tree, you got to, you know, maybe, I don't know, but mastering grow is, it. <laughs> yeah, you got to grow it, whatever. You got to chop this other tree down. Mastering is looking at the overall forest oh. and making sure that it is together. So essentially mixing it, you have all these different tracks that you're trying to come, you know, converge into basically a stereo track that plays out of two speakers, two headphones, whatever, left and right. And once all those tracks are mixed, mastering's job is to take all those tracks and make sure that when you play through them, that when you play one song to the next, you don't get a huge jump in volume. Or one song sounds really dark compared to the next song. Oh, I see. Now, in classical and jazz, mastering is, uh, it's not that it's not important, but it's a little bit more of a, um, usually... I don't want to say easier task, but it's a, a simpler, they, they do less because usually jazz and classical recordings are recorded at the same time in the same building, the same players with the same microphones all at once. So you would expect that even in the mix, as you do the mixes, they're pretty much going to sound uniform as far as overall tonality, the overall you know level of things. And because it was all the same process, yeah, same yeah. room, whereas sometimes with pop recordings or rock recordings, you might record one song and then record another song a year later with completely different microphones in a completely different room, even with different musicians, maybe. Yeah, yeah. And so when you mix the songs, they might be slightly different sounding from each other. It's not that one's right or wrong. It's just that they, you know, they sound different. And so mastering's job is to make sure that all the songs that come together sound like a cohesive unit and they sound like they go together. So... That's so interesting. That's such a great way of putting it. It's it's funny now to learn. And we were just discussing that, you know, two years ago, um, we actually recorded my, I had a grant for recording an album and, and I recorded it with you at, out at OCL Studios, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, but I I remember all the different steps that I, I kind of learned about through that process, you know, working with the producer and and uh, and and the engineering, which you're just a master at, just a complete whiz. <laughs> also a whiz at the uh, the mixing and stuff. I remember joking that he was a jack of all trades, master of all. <laughs> <laughs> Can I trade my back? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it was really amazing. It was actually like prodigious to watch you working in the way that you you work with the computer and uh, super impressive. But I have to admit that when it came time to send you this tapes for mastering after we'd done all the the editing in this very room, actually. Um, but after we did all that, I wasn't quite sure what was happening in that step. Right. So, and it was the only one I wasn't involved in. So it was kind of like, okay, here goes the recording. Let's see what it's like when it comes back, right. you know, but I never really knew. So that's really, really interesting. Yeah. And I mean, like with a case like your record where it's, it, you know, classical jazz based, the mastering really mastering, you just don't want to hear what they do. The best master in the world is when you don't have to think about it. Or even the, really the best mix in the world is when you're not really listening to the mix. You're just listening to the music. Yeah. And it's like it's it's like looking at a photograph versus experiencing something in real life. You know, you can tell from a photograph, I would say like a rough mix is like looking at a photograph. It's like, oh, yeah, I see what you're trying to do here. But like or it's a, you know, maybe a, it's very flat or it's very small or mm -hmm. maybe the colors aren't quite right or whatever. And then a great mix is like experiencing in real life where everything is vivid and it's huge and 3D and 
you feel like you're part of it. Yeah. And it, I, I don't mean huge as in, it doesn't have to necessarily be big sounding all the time, but it's, it's, it's real sounding or it, it makes you feel whatever that artist was trying to convey. So in the case of classical and jazz, again, my viewpoint is I want to feel like I'm on stage with them and experiencing what they're performing in a pop record. If the song is a happy song, when I want someone to listen to it, and even if they don't know what it's about, I want them to feel happy. Hmm. If it's a sad song, I want them to feel depressed and sad. If it's a depressed, yeah, <laughs> I maybe got a little dark. If it's a if it's a dark, you know, an angry song, yeah. it should make you feel aggravated or like you know, yeah, worked yeah. up. Um, uh, the mix has so much to do with that. It's it really. I mean, that's why I'm so fascinated by it because coming from playing instruments, playing you know classical instruments to rock, pop, blues, jazz, whatever country and then recording it all and you know producing and engineering to me the mix is still it's like this amazing art form that yeah it's just you have so much control and manipulation over things that to me it's the ultimate form of writing Mm -hmm. uh, writing music and maybe it's partly because i was never very good at composing on the violin or you know i can't play piano I, I always wish i could but i was jealous of you know piano players who can just bang out all these chords and it's like oh here's the song yeah and i could never do that and to me this is like my way of expression it's yeah it's like well i can't play the piano but i have control over the piano player now by <laughs> pushing i'm pushing up and down a fader you know or like i i can play the drums but you know you can really drums are actually very interesting because you can totally change the groove of a song just based on how loud each of the instruments are within the drum kit. If the snare is way louder than the kick, it won't groove as hard as if they're maybe more in line or, you know, balanced properly. Same thing with the hi-hat. If the hi-hat's way louder than everything else, the drummer may sound like he's wimpy or not hitting very hard. Whereas vice versa, if the drums are really loud and the cymbals are quite soft, he can sound like he's really aggressive and animalistic. So like the mixer really has control over everything. The the whole feel of the song. Yeah. It's... Yeah, a lot of power, a lot of responsibility. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting because, like, um, I didn't mean to talk about my recording so much, but it's the experience, direct experience I have working with you and, and your... Oh, it's your... a great recording. You well, should, thank you. you I should appreciate be, that. You should be talking about it. Well, you I'm know... I'm very it, proud of it. It's, uh, well, we just got a great review recently in the uh, online clarinet magazine at clarinet.org, which was I was really thrilled about. And one of the things I actually complimented on, which I was glad of, was the production and uh, engineering, which I, you know... Props to you, of course, for you know capturing it all. Um, but one of the best uh, uh, personal feedback I got was someone I didn't even know who lives in Australia or something. But he, when it first came out, he bought a copy on CD Baby. Mm-hmm. And I don't even know how he found it. But anyways, he emailed me and said that moments of it brought him to tears. Wow. And I was just so moved. And I was like, oh, in a way, I'm so happy that, you know, I was able to convey the the, the emotions in these simple pieces like that. But Really, a lot of the credit goes to you and the way that it was captured. So let's talk a bit about how one can, and I mean, I know you have quite a bit of experience and not everyone has, you know, $25,000 worth of microphones in front of them, but how can one situate themselves uh, with the computer and with the microphones and the way they're sitting and everything else in a studio to get the best recording? Right. Okay. Well, I will, uh, I'll back up a little bit from where you said, because I think what people need to realize the most important thing. 100% 100% is the performance. Yeah. The performance is king. It, All that other stuff, I mean, gear is great, but without the performance, you can have the best gear in the world, and with a crappy performance, it's still going to sound like crap. Yeah. So 
number one, you have to have a good performer and a good, you know, good musician, whatever, or a good singer. The performance has to be on point. And it also has to be an emotional performance. Just because you play it technically perfectly doesn't necessarily mean it will move someone. Sometimes an almost perfect performance, but if it's done in, a, in the right way, actually will be better. Like if you listen to Adele sing, let's say, I mean, this is, you know, kind of pop. Who hasn't heard of Adele? Yeah, that's but fine. <laughs> she's, you know, sometimes she's flat, but it's such a great performance that it's engaging and people want to listen to it. It so, depends on the, you know, I wonder if there's certain types of people who gravitate towards that kind of musicality because same thing with Radiohead for me. I mean, some people are like, oh, he's just such an out of tune kind of awkward singer. And I'm like, that's what I love about it. Exactly. Yeah. It's just so it real. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's so musical in a sense. So I think first realize that like, no matter how good the microphone or the gear you have, it's not going to be, it's not going to make as much of a difference as if you're a good musician. Or a good mm-hmm. performer and playing a good performance. So that's number one. Number two, microphones. Um, I mean, there's a few different types. Condenser microphones, which are usually the big, you know, big ones with the big grills on them. Um, they're usually the most sensitive. They usually have the biggest frequency range. They pick up the most high end. They need something lower. called phantom power. What, in a nutshell, what is that? Uh, essentially, they just need uh, power to to operate. It, Makes the, sense. <laughs> the di- yeah, the diaphragm is, you know, it's an electrically charged um, diaphragm and it needs power to, you know, work. Uh, so basically the console or the, your microphone preamp is just sending it some power so that it can function. Whereas okay. a di- dynamic mic, uh, they're usually less sensitive, meaning they don't, the frequency response, they usually don't pick up as much high end or as much low end. Um, but they're usually way more rugged and durable. Um, they can take higher SPL, like higher volume things. What's such SPL, sound pressure level? Sound pressure level. So drums are very loud. And if you're sticking a microphone right beside it, a drum, you know, imagine sticking your ear right beside a snare drum. If a drummer is going to hit a backbeat, mm-hmm. it would be deafeningly loud. So those microphones are very good for picking up that kind of stuff. They're a little slower in response because the diaphragm is a, a giant metal uh, co- or uh, yeah, uh, like a magnet moving between coils, and it's usually quite large and heavy, so it's a little slower to react. Whereas a condenser microphone is a very thin gold, usually a gold-plated. Um, you know, it, it can only be a few microns thick, mm-hmm. versus a uh, uh, on a backplate. And essentially, what happens is there's power in the diaphragm uh, versus the backplate, which is negatively charged, and the, the, the diaphragm is positively par- charged, or vice versa. And, I'm not, I'm not super, I'm techie, I'm a geek, but I'm not that much of a geek. But essentially what happens is when the sound pressure hits the diaphragm, it's so thin that it vibrates and the microphone picks up the difference between uh, the back plate and the, the diaphragm because they're charged differently and the, the distance between them, you know, changes and that produces a magnetic uh, electronic signal. Mm-hmm. Um, then you also have a ribbon microphone, which is essentially a, a giant, usually they're quite large, um, very very thin uh, uh piece of metal i guess um a ribbon and that's placed between two very powerful magnets and mm-hmm. it moving between the magnets produces electrical signal which is then your sound and ribbon microphones are usually the darkest of all all the microphone types they're also the most natural sounding um or the smoothest they um they don't have as much detail but they're very smooth very warm um very dark they're they're kind of part of it they're slow they they i think they react more like our human ear than a a condenser microphone is so sensitive and so hyper 
you know, it's like looking through a microscope. Active almost, yeah. 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 It picks up things that we normally wouldn't hear, and it's so fast. Whereas a ribbon microphone hears more like our ears, not necessarily in frequency response, but I think in speed. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe this is a strange thing to talk about, but sound, you know, it's different sound pressure levels, and there's different speeds to different, you know, frequencies, and um, microphones will pick that up differently. So meaning, if I clap my hands condenser is going to get the exact transient of where that sound pressure level happened whereas a ribbon mic might have a tiny bit of a, a not a delayed response but just a slower more natural um, almost like a fade in yeah of, almost yeah. like a fade in and that's kind of more how our ears hear things yeah i think and that's why ribbon mics usually sound great to people the only downside to them which it's not necessarily a downside but they're dark usually they don't pick up the high frequencies as well so if you did everything with ribbon mics your recording is going to probably turn out quite dark you can boost it up with eq and usually ribbon mics take eq very well because they don't have any resonances compared to a condenser like if you think about uh condenser microphones have a circular diaphragm and a circle just like a drum will resonate at a certain frequency you tune drums to different pitches depending on how big they are it'll ring at a certain pitch mm -hmm. a condenser microphone with a circular diaphragm will also ring at a certain pitch it's just a lot higher but Interesting. what can happen is with certain vocals, you know, when they're singing, there may be upper mid-range or high-end frequencies that really resonate on the mic and they really poke out and ring kind of. Um, and they can be quite harsh or, you know, pokey or whatever. So there's ups and downsides to all of them. Is that why condenser, condenser microphones sometimes have like a self-noise? Um, Some of them do like a very low hum or something like that, I've noticed. Sometimes that's just due to the nature of the electronics in the, the oh, microphone because okay. they, they are so sensitive that they do have some self-noise. Um, so they you, pick up themselves almost. Yeah, yeah. they pick up the, themselves operating essentially because yeah. they're so sensitive. Um, usually the very expensive versions that we're talking, you know, like several thousands to $20,000 microphones, you know, they'll have lower self-noise than if you just buy a USB microphone. Yeah. Um, I mean, but some of the old ones that are tube-based, they might actually have more noise than, you know, a $500 condenser mic that you can get nowadays. It all just, you know, it all just depends. Sometimes that noise is good, too. It kind of, like, helps smooth, you know, mask things or smooth things out. So yeah. You don't necessarily want, you know, think about it like light. We like soft white light where it's, you know, that kind of yellowish tinge or the yellowish glow. Even though it's, it's not white, it's yellow, essentially, but it, it's pleasing to us. If you had stark fluorescent lights everywhere, it would be kind of ugly and harsh looking. Yeah. It's the same thing with sound. Like, people don't necessarily like pure perfection because it's too stark and too real. Or think about it like video. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen um, behind the scenes of uh, when they're making movies and you see them filming what the scene is, but with like a regular home camcorder at, you know, Mm -hmm. 60 frames or whatever it is and it's almost like too lifelike and too stark yeah my tv does that sometimes if you turn off the motion blur or something yeah it gets very very weird looking yeah uh we kind of like you know movie i think cinema has done at 24 frames a second which yeah. is actually quite slow compared to uh you know what's available and not saying that faster frame rates are bad but there's kind of a, a um there's a magic to that that um cinema quality yeah. Same thing with sound. It having a perfect representation of exactly what you're hearing at that, you know, with that microphone might not be the best thing. You might actually want it to be colored slightly or, you know, 
yeah, yeah. So edges to be softened or whatever. It's like a lens on a camera, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So let's say, you know. Instagram filters. There's the Instagram. best. There is the best example ever. <laughs> the modern example. How there many, you know, like everyone takes a picture. Ooh, that, ooh, that doesn't look good. Oh, let's put a filter. Oh, that looks way better. It doesn't yeah. necessarily look more accurate. It may look better to you, but it is less accurate. Yeah, yeah. Same thing goes with sound. You don't necessarily want whatever is the most accurate. You want what is the most pleasing. Well, and the Instagram filter, too, puts an emotion on it. It does. Totally. Know? It totally does. Yeah. And, I mean, we can tie that into, like, with clarinet, for instance, when we were recording, I remember using a condenser and a ribbon on you. Yeah, yeah. There was uh, two close mics and one room mic, I think, was what we, yeah. was what we had going there. And... uh so let's say, like, we haven't really talked about deciding whether or not to record oh. in, a, in a studio with isolation right. or versus, um, and for those who don't know what that means, it's like, with isolation, which is what I did, you got the clarinet in one room, and we had marimba and vibraphone in the other room, and you have the freedom to kind of pick and choose from your takes individually, right? But another way of recording would be, like, you go to a church and you set up mm-hmm. microphones and and uh, you record the performance, you know? Yeah. So... We have so much to talk about here, but I don't know whether it'd be better to start with the room selection or the mic selection and then placement or what. Mm-hmm. Okay. Just walk us through like deciding what vibe you want. And also once you get the mics, I think where they, to place them because clarinet's not a directional instrument. Right. It's tough to record. They go hand in mic, you know, mic choice and the room go hand in hand and the recording style. Cause if you're recording in isolation, meaning like you were saying, the players are in separate rooms and they are totally isolated from each other. So your microphone is only picking up you and the other person's microphone is only picking up them. The microphone doesn't necessarily have to be as close to the instrument because you're not worried about trying to get as much of you in it as you can. Whereas, you know, if you're recording all in the same room, I would mic you a lot closer and I would mic the other person a lot closer than I would have if you're in isolation because I'm trying to get as much sound from you out of your microphone as I can. Yeah. Um, so that if I want to turn you up, I can turn you up in the mix without turning everyone else up too. Yeah. Whereas in isolation, it doesn't matter because it's isolated. So essentially in, in a, uh, where it's live all in one room, the mics, I would use less condensers actually, because condensers are so sensitive and they pick up everything that they're going to pick up a lot more of everyone else as well. Yeah. It's called um, bleed, right? When it goes yeah, across the channels. Or bleed. Tracks, so usually, and I mean, there's also different microphone pickup patterns where, you know, either the microphone picks up everything around it or it only picks up what's in front of it or mm. it picks up what's in front and behind, but not on the sides, which would be figure eight. There's, you know, different, many different options. Um, and usually ribbon mics are figure eight, meaning that they pick up the front and the back and not the sides. But if you were in a situation like that, where let's say you were facing another player, a ribbon mic might not be a good option because it's going to pick up what's in front of it, but it's also going to pick up what's behind it. Yeah. So it's going to get just as much of what's behind it as in front of it, unless you position it where maybe you're at a 90 degree angle from the other player so that the ribbon mic, it doesn't pick anything up from the side and maybe the side is pointed to the other player. Yeah. Yeah. So you can use different microphones, different microphone techniques based on, you know, the pickup pattern, what kind of mic it is, the room. If the room is super lively and bright, I'm probably going to pick dark microphones. If the room is super dark and dead, I'm probably going to use bright microphones, Mm -hmm. you know, microphones that pick up a lot of high end to kind of counteract what's happening in the room. Um, And and let's say we're going back to isolation. 
because you have isolation, you don't necessarily need to mic, mic the instrument up super close. And like in the instance of the clarinet, like you're saying, it's not directional because the sound comes out all the keyholes. If I was just to put the mic right on the bell at the bottom or right by one keyhole, well, whenever you play that note, whatever note pops out of that keyhole, it's going to be way louder than the rest of it. And you're going to get this lumpy sound that will have certain notes that resonate louder than others. Yeah. Whereas if you back the mic, mic off six inches to two feet, let's say, you're going to get a more overall representation of the whole sound. Mm-hmm. And then the reason why I use a room mic, and usually with classical and jazz stuff, I always put up room mics because when we're used to hearing those instruments, we're used to hearing them in a room. We're not here, you know, no one sticks their ear right up to a saxophone and just listens to the saxophone from the bell. <laughs> Please don't torture yourself like that. Yeah, exactly. Especially with saxophone. Yeah. Or even trumpet. Like no one puts their ear right up to a trumpet bell and listens yeah. to the trumpet. They listen to the trumpet from 5 to 10, 15, 20 feet away. Yeah. So you're actually hearing the trumpet in the room. And I mean, there's a good example of a, a drummer, actually. He takes a kick drum and a snare drum. I think it was in New York and... He basically goes to all these different places and he plays the same kick drum, same snare drum, just plays the same beat in all these different settings. Yeah, rooms, basically. Different rooms, like a parkade and then a church and then, a, you know, a small room and then a, whatever, a park. And the drums sound completely different in every hmm. situation. And he doesn't change anything. It's just the room, the reflections, everything. So knowing what kind of room you're in will dictate what microphones you use, how close you put them. You know, if you're in a very lively room, a very reflective room that has a lot of echo to it, the mic will probably be closer to the instrument because you want to try to get as much direct sound as you can. Whereas if it's a very dead room, you could probably put the mic a few feet away and it's not really going to sound that much different than if you put it up close. So, you know, when I'm engineering something, all those things are going through my head constantly. It's like this giant puzzle that you're trying to solve and trying to compensate for with various things and or even the clarinet are you do you have a bright tone or do you have a dark tone yeah if you have a dark tone i'm probably gonna use a brighter mic if you have a dark tone i'm or a bright tone i'm gonna use a darker mic and i remember this this is where the interesting kind of like the blending comes in too i remember that you recorded um or i think anyways a ribbon mic and a condenser Mm -hmm. and what you're able to do then was blend the two together Mm -hmm. and get a more representative sound and if you wanted to you could then darken it up or lighten it up for the track yeah so i mean that, it can get tricky because as soon as you use two microphones on a source you run into phase problems phase is basically just the timing when the sound hits each mic yeah. so if there's a timing difference between when the sound arrives to each mic the sound is going to cancel out each other at certain frequencies if they're perfectly in line you won't have any of that so that's the first thing you got to make sure is the mics are, the capsules are completely in line so that there's no phases. They were almost touching. They maybe were touching slightly. Also, yeah. Barely. Yeah. And that the, the sound arrives at each of them at the exact same time. So once you have that, um, the reason why I chose it with you is because sometimes when you're working with an artist for the first time too, you're not sure if they, if some people like a bright sound, some people like a really dark mellow sound. So it offered the choice. It offers the choice of, you know, not fixing it later, but basically being able to paint with those textures later. And usually with horns or uh, wind instruments, I usually find a good combination having both because a lot of the low warmth, the the ribbon mics just pick that up so well. But then usually you want to hear some of the air in that detail, which they don't do that well. And you could boost up the high frequencies 
with an EQ on that mic, but it's not the same as the super hyper detailed condenser mic. It's almost like a high dynamic range photo that captures like the... Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly it. It's where it captures all these different uh, uh, exposures and then you blend them together. Yeah, in the way that you want. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's so interesting. I, it's, it's funny looking back and the things I didn't realize at the time right. were happening. And I actually remember too, you getting down and, and uh, ask me to play and then just moving your head around and listening. Yeah. And because that too, I mean, sometimes all this technical crap, I mean, you wouldn't want to just sit down and say, okay, put the clarinet 6.2 inches. No. Yeah. The, you know, you got to use your ears you gotta, and, and yeah. that's the musical side um, mm-hmm. that you're applying, right? Yeah. I think I, I learned that lesson kind of early on that, you know, if you move your ear an inch, literally from an instrument, it can sound completely different just based on how, where the sound is resonant or, um, you know, coming out of the instrument mm-hmm. and also based on the room, based on everything else. So as you get the microphone closer to the instrument, every millimeter, every inch actually sounds much more different than if you were 10 feet away. Yeah. You know, if you're 10 feet away, you can move the, the mic a foot and it's not really going to sound any different probably. Mm, yeah. Uh, I mean, it depends on the room, but if you're up close, an inch can mean the world. So um, you really have to, you know, get in there and kind of figure out where is the sweet spot for this instrument? Where does the sound the most natural or the most um, pleasing? That's uh, so interesting. You know, and, and so one more thing we should touch on is uh, the idea of the different sound spaces and soundscapes. And I, I don't think it's something a lot of classical musicians think about. Um, and it's something that I was really, I have a little bit of interest in production and, and not nowhere near <laughs> what you're doing, obviously. But um, when I had the chance to record this, it was very important to me that it was in a certain way. And that hasn't pleased everybody, but that's okay. <laughs> you know, not all the people who listened to it thought it was, it was just different. It's right. different than most clarinet and rimba recordings. So most would exist in like a, a hall mm-hmm. and you get that natural resonance and you'd get all these different things. But I kind of wanted the concert hall to be the headphones or yeah. the speakers you were listening to yeah. instead of that. So like artistically, what are the options and how can one decide? Well, I think if you record a little on the drier side, you can always add reverb later and add more effects and echo and things to make it seem like it's in a bigger space. I think there's a little bit of, uh, there's definitely some animosity towards that, right or wrong, in right. the classical community. In the classical community. I have yeah. no problem with it. Yeah. Why would someone learn to not have a problem with that? How could they learn? <laughs> well, How could they accept it? The way I, you know what, I view recording different than live performance and, you know, maybe the classical me too, people are going to sh- shoot me. But No, some people, it's interesting the contrast between guests. I mean, some guests are ardently... Uh, you know what it the- is? There's certain people who believe recording should be taking a picture. Yes, yes. There's some people who believe it's painting. Yeah, I believe it's painting. I believe so too. Because you know what? If I want to go hear a clarinet and a marimba in a concert hall, I'm going to go to a concert. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, I'm going to yeah. hear it in a concert hall. Exactly. And if I listen to it at home on speakers, it's just not going to be as good as that performance. Whereas I L- think literally can't be. It can't be. It's just yeah. never going to be the same. So I say, why not have it be this different experience where, again, for me, listening to classical jazz music, I want to feel like I'm on stage with them because in real life, I would never get to do that. Yeah, I would never get, you know, you can't go to a concert and just go out and stand next to the performers and you know, watch them perform. You can, but you'll get kicked off stage. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the recording world is this magical place where we can actually simulate that and we can make it seem like you are on stage with them and you can have yeah. that experience. You know what? Really, the best way to describe it is theater versus movies. Yeah. Both are acting, but they're, compl- you know, they're very different. 
movies, and I mean, in classical, maybe they're a little more similar. In Let's say in pop music, though, it's very much like making Completely a, different. a Hollywood movie where everything is shot in small segments and it's pieced together later. And, you know, certain scenes, it might not make sense or whatever. But when you put it all together, it's like you have this, oh, wow, that movie was great. Whereas you go to the theater and everything is performed live and it's it's a great experience, but it's they're just very different things. And if you if you filmed, you know, my view of people who believe classical music should just be capturing a performance and listening to it as if you were in the hall, it would be like taking a camcorder to a theater show. Yeah, I was just going to say, filming how awkward it, is that to watch? It? And then listening to or watching yeah. it at home. It just. Why? Why yeah. not just go to the theater? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think keep. I mean, I'm maybe very opinionated on this, but I think keep them separate. Keep recording as this amazing thing that you can, you know, sure, you can, it's not, it's not, it's not reality, but why does it have to be? Let's experience something fun. And it lets the performance stay amazing too. Yeah. Instead of deadening it. I think that's, I think that's a reason that a lot of people go to live shows and they're, they're, they're almost disappointed these days is because it's so different than what they expect. Yeah. Like they, ex- I don't know. It's, it's. Anyways, we're kind of treading into some weird territory yeah. Yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. But but so, I mean, for me, it was important that I, I got that sort of almost like a jazz pop kind of sound that w- exists in your headphones as what we just talked about, its yeah. own entity, you yeah. know? And I don't expect, I think in a way it's a little bit freeing because I don't expect it to sound exactly like that live. Right. And it, you know what? The thing is, it never will because every every venue you perform at, it's going to sound different. It gets to be its own thing, though, which is so interesting. And yeah, it's like exciting. A, it's this different experience that you and your fans get to do together and i think what it does too is it helps bring your fans closer to you and if you're an artist or you know performing by giving them that intimate experience yeah they can actually feel more connected to you yeah. rather than always being 20 feet away at a concert hall well and and the compression is another thing that has a bad sort of reputation right. it seems um but it can be very important like for example you don't have the ability to experience the same dynamics at home in your headphones while you're on the bus or whatever, as you do in a concert hall. Yeah. So it's unreasonable to expect the same level of range in a recording, in my, again, in my opinion. Yeah. No, <laughs> you know? that's completely true. And I think another big part of that, you know, when people get all huffy-puffy about compression, they don't realize that, you know, when you place a microphone very close to an instrument, the dynamic range is exaggerated. Yeah. If you're 10 feet away, 20 feet away in a concert hall, by the time the sound hits their ears, it's already echoed around and it's kind of diffused itself and then dynamics have leveled out by the time it hits them. Whereas if the microphone is an inch away from whatever instrument it is, if you blow or, you know, if you play a little hard compared to really hard, you're really going to tell. So in recording, you need, you do need some compression to smooth it out. Now, compression is one of those things that, it can be used very poorly. And when it yeah. is used poorly, it's awful. But if you use it correctly and, you know, that's where learning your tools and knowing what all this stuff does. And I mean, there's thousands of different compressors and no, like certain compressors may sound better or worse on certain instruments. And even just knowing that like no compress compression isn't created equal. Mm-hmm. So knowing which compressor to use on which instrument and how hard to hit it and how much level to feed the compressor. And how, you know, or even if you chain different, like, rather than having, you know, one compressor do four decibels of reduction, maybe having four compressors do one decibel each of reduction mm-hmm. might be way better. Yeah. It's like, there's, yeah a whole world of possibilities. But I do think that it can be overused, but it, it's also very necessary to, like you said, riding the bus. There's, there's a, a noise floor riding the bus or the train that 
there's already 50 to 60, 70 dB of noise going on around you. So meaning that if the music was only 50 dB loud, the train noise is 70 dB. You're not going to hear anything. Yeah. yeah so, you don't. I hate listening to that kind of music on the on the train, for example. I mean, and that's I think why. the people who say they enjoy it are almost lying to themselves yeah. a bit because they, they, they're not hearing the, the <laughs> what they think they're hearing. Exactly. Whereas in a concert hall, it's relatively, let's say, silent or, you know, the noise floor is 20 or 30 dB. Yeah. So you hear all those nuances where and that uh, I think a recording is meant to be enjoyed in many different uh, locations. And that's I, that's part of mastering's job, too, is to make sure that the dynamic range is not too large on a recording. Um, it's helping smoothing that out in the most invisible way possible. Yeah. And again, it like there can be there's lots of examples of bad compression, especially on trumpets and stuff like you can hear it right away. And it's just like, oh, that sounds terrible. Yeah. But if it's done right, you won't even know it's happening. It just it seems smoother and seems more controlled. And you're able to turn the recording up to the point where you can get above the noise floor. Let's say the car, the train. You can have the whole recording sit above that noise floor and hear the whole recording and not lose any notes. Yeah. But also yeah. not have it tear your head off when a certain, you know, intense section comes. Yeah. And it helps kind of better convey the emotion that you were intending. It's not mm-hmm. it's not doctoring it in some way. I think that's kind of the, a, no. myth, a myth surrounding it. So, yeah. Well, yeah, it's so interesting how how um, all these things affect the the performance that and, and it's, it's all in like an augmentation way. It's nothing's really detracting from and it's funny because i i listened to uh um or sorry uh, various albums that i listened to i one time i noticed that you know there's of course i like radiohead i've talked about that a lot but then i listened to some band war paint and this other one uh air i think it was called and i was like why do these three albums all stand out to me what is it about them that i really like and i realized it's the same producer mm. and 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 uh <laughs> yeah yeah and i was like ah so maybe i actually like this producer more than i like this band you know and you know what's so funny you say that because like now th- there's this thing going on in at least the pop world where like the the producer slash the dj guy they're almost as famous as the artists yeah, yeah. think about it like you know calvin harris or yeah. uh tiesto or uh you know zed or Skrillex or I mean I could you know go on and on but a lot of these guys they're they're almost the the producers are an artist in a way where they're shaping the music and this stuff and the band is their instrument yeah 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 it's it's really interesting with Radiohead they joke that he's the sixth yeah unofficial sixth member of the band and and sometimes he's even come on stage to play like a tambourine right for a track or something ridiculous like that but there was actually a picture on on Facebook recently where someone was like Oh my God! I was at whatever bar in the UK, and I turned around, and there's Tom York and now Nigel Godrich, and I. It's just funny that someone would recognize the producer, Ni- Nigel. Yeah, you know, like <laughs> yeah, totally. So, anyways, that was a really, really fascinating conversation. But there's one more element I want to touch on before we wrap up, and that is home recording, because not everyone has the mm-hmm. chance or or the money or the opportunity or the need, honestly, to record at a at a studio, um, yeah, somewhere out of town or spending a lot of money or whatever. They just want to record a demo at home or something. And so how can someone, first of all, treat their room in a way that will reward them the best? Yeah. Um, and what microphones would you recommend to someone who's trying to record, for example, a clarinet? There's a clarinet podcast. I know we kind right. of tread it through the weeds a bit. but <laughs> Right. Yeah. But uh, so what, what would you recommend? So the first thing is um, getting rid of flutter echoes and trying to even out the low end in your room. The easiest way to do that is insulation, basically. Either the pink stuff, like the whatever it's called, you know, the Pink Panther on it. Or what's better, at least in Canada, we have Roxul, mm. R-O-X-U-L-L. 
It's made out of volcanic ash. It's green stuff. You can see some of it right there. Oh, yeah. It's basically, it's a little thicker and denser. Um, in the States, they have Owen, Owen, Owen Corning's 703 and 702. It's yellow insulation. Basically, it's just insulation. Yeah. And what it does is the sound pressure gets eaten up by it. And yeah. then it gets evened out. And it kind of soaks up the sound. Um, so the, the best way to do it is you just get a one by four or one inch by four inch piece of wood. Usually they come in eight foot chunks. You chop it up. So you have two, four foot chunks and two, two foot chunks and you build the picture frame. So it looks like a picture frame. That's two feet by four feet, two feet by four feet, you know, a rectangle. And that will usually fit any of these pieces of insulation perfectly like a picture. You just put the insulation in it and you wrap it in fabric huh. and voila, you have sound absorbing make your own and how much would that cost on average to do it yourself like that <sighs> you per, could, per panel per panel probably ten dollars that's it five to ten dollars oh, yeah. i feel so stupid i paid recently uh, <laughs> i paid for a bunch of foam that barely did anything on amazon recently right, i bought a yeah. big box of i know oral x or whatever yeah, yeah yeah i mean yeah the thing is it's it is quite affordable to do it it's a bit of a pain in the ass to yeah. do it um but it did improve the sound of the podcast a little bit because i was getting a lot of bounce back kind of mm -hmm. stuff and and i wanted to use a different kind of microphone which i had purchased and uh i think that anyone listening would notice a marked improvement after right. that i did that to my office right you know? yeah so that's the main way i mean usually you can only buy the insulation in eight uh panel things and it's like 30 or 40 bucks for eight eight you know bats of insulation yeah and the wood will cost you you know five ten dollars and then the fabric is probably the most expensive part but you can really you could make eight panels for you know 60 bucks 60 mm -hmm. to 80 bucks, I think. Um, the corners of the room will have the most low frequency problems. So, I mean, if you're just recording a clarinet, it's probably not that big of a deal. You're not yeah. really worried about low frequencies. But um, if you have speakers in your room and you're trying to listen back to what you're playing or recorded, if your speakers are in the corner, they're going to have unnaturally high bass in them. Yes. And even if your speakers are in the room and your corners are all untreated, the speakers might have a ton of bass or they might have no bass, depending on where you put them. Um, so treating the corners of the rooms and then also the reflection points, you know, if you, there's a wall between you or, you know, beside you and the clarinet, you should put some, uh, absorption there between that and the mic so that, you know, any sound bouncing off the wall doesn't bounce off the wall directly back into the mic. Yeah. The easy way to tell if you're, you're really concerned about it, get a mirror. And if you have, you know, your clarinet and the mirror anywhere that you can see, if you move the, you have a friend move the mirror around in the room along the walls and if you can see the microphone or the, you know if you're looking from the microphone's perspective the clarinet if you can see them in the mirror you're getting sound reflections from that wall into each other oh, so a good tip yeah um another thing which i'll uh you can maybe put a link on it you can see it in there it's um it's called a ha uh halo i think yeah Made by Aston. Oh, the little sound box things. Yeah, yeah you yeah. can put those around the microphones. They do help. I mean, they're not, it's not as good as having a treated room, but they do help a bit. Um, uh, and, you know, they're relatively, relatively affordable. I mean, they're really, for what they are, they're freaking expensive. But, yeah, yeah. you know, for someone who, if you're, if you're wanting to improve your sound quality and you don't have, you can't put any room treatment in your apartment, let's say. Yeah. Spend a couple hundred bucks on one of these things and it will make a difference. It yeah. will. Um, and then as far as microphones go, I mean, we're li really living in a golden age. The technology available to us is so great compared to what it used to be. Um, 
mean, even the mic we're recording through right now, I was telling you earlier, the Slate Digital DMS microphone, it's it models other microphones and it's it's incredible. Like, yeah, it really does work. And you're saying this is a this is a thousand dollar microphone. And that sounds like a lot until you realize that you said earlier it has more than sixty thousand dollars worth of mics in it or something. Yeah, like technically the, the mic that like the one I use a lot that we're modeling is a C12, which like vintage C12s, you know, they go on eBay for like anywhere from twelve to twenty thousand US dollars. Wow. And you know, for a thousand bucks, I get to model it. And sure, it's probably only 95% as good. But like, when you do the math, well, 95% of the circumstances is probably enough. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. at the end of the day, again, it comes back to the performance. So and the fact that you can also you have different options, like, yeah, you have all these different mic selections. So I would highly recommend it. I use it all the time on different vocalists and instruments. It's amazing. Um, I mean, if you're if you're really wanting to spend some coin, um, any vintage Neumann mic you can find that's in good working condition usually will be great for, you know, clarinets. Yeah. Um, those are condensers. Yeah. Condensers. Yeah. I mean, they're going to, you're going to pay several thousand though. Yeah. If you're, uh, you know, cheaper on the side, but you want a darker tone, ribbon mics are fantastic. I love the Coles 4038. It's, you know, I think new around 1300 bucks. It used to be, it might be more now, but you can usually find it used for, you know, around, I think, or maybe it's new. It's like sixteen hundred. But I think you can find them for eleven or twelve hundred bucks, and yeah. they sound fantastic. Um, but I mean, even some of the cheaper stuff. Like I remember the Shure KSM forty four. I had one of those for a while. It was really good. I got it for like four hundred bucks. Yeah. Um, the Audio Technica forty forties or forty fifties. I think they sound pretty good, uh, and they're quite affordable compared to you know some of the other stuff. But the slate, man, the slate microphone for a thousand bucks, it can't be beat. Yeah, it's it's incredible. Well, I know these these prices seem kind of high compared to, you know, people go to the store and they expect to pay 80 or 100 dollars for the microphone. But you kind of get what you pay for. And yeah. And the thing, too, is that we're kind of talking about trying to produce a quality recording at home. Um, but if someone is just trying to capture, what's the least they should really spend before they just consider it almost like a. Right, not a, a toy, point of diminishing like, returns. Yeah, where's the yeah. point where it's like uh, two hundred dollars is not well spent, but four hundred dollars is fantastic. Right, I think uh, there's a good point to make. The price doesn't necessarily dictate quality. It's the it's the type of microphone or the the brand or whatever. Like you could pay two thousand dollars for, or like I know uh, for instance, AKG four fourteen, great mic, mm -hmm. but on a clarinet, it's probably going to be very bright, and maybe that's what you want, and maybe yeah. that's what you're going for, but. Some people might hear and they go, oh, that mic sounds terrible. It's so bright and harsh. Well, no, it's just not meant for your application. Yeah. Whereas the Coles 4038, about the same price, people might hear and go, oh, wow, that's so warm and rich. Yeah. So price doesn't necessarily dictate. So, I mean, if I was, if money is no object, yeah, I would use a, uh, I mean, I think we use a Bach 507, which is like a ten or twelve thousand dollar mic, but yeah, I think you told me you're like, just so you know, no pressure, but there's like thirty thousand dollars worth of mics in front of you right now, and I was like, oh, okay, I'll try not to trip over that. Yeah, trip over that stand then. <laughs> but so, for instance, that mic is like twelve, twelve grand Canadian yeah. at least, yeah. and the Coles forty thirty eight is only whatever twelve hundred to sixteen hundred. Yeah, and so there's like literally one costs ten times the amount the other does, but they both sound great. It just depends on you know, and depends what sound you're going for, what kind of tone you want. Um, so with the cheaper lower end stuff, yeah, I, I remember the Surekiss M44 sounding good as a large diaphragm condenser, which I think you could probably find used for like 400 bucks. Yeah. Um, if you're, you know, if you're in the 80 to 300 range, 
most of them are probably going to sound pretty similar. Mm-hmm. Um, and another thing, a misconception is some of those knockoff Chinese mics, like I can't remember the exact brand, but I'm using MXL, which is basically like a right. very cheap. And they, I find they have different characteristics. Well, what were you going to say about them? Sometimes they can sound just as good as the expensive ones. The, yeah. The problem with them is the quality control. So you don't know if you're getting a good one or not. And it's like that with clarinets, actually, too. You know, yeah. I mean, if you pay a lot of money for one, uh, the high-level high professional ones, they're going to be more consistent yeah. and, than the ones that... It's interesting about the, the little, uh, the cheaper mics, too, is because I was reading the reviews of them. And one of the reasons I went with the ones I did choose is because I wanted a ribbon mic, uh, uh, a condenser various ones for different uses and i went with them because people said this is 80 percent as good as a right. mic that costs 20 or 20 times more yeah, yeah you know yeah. and so i was like okay i'm tempted by that but now though you've got me thinking that a better way for the modern musician to to produce what they really want is these slate mics because you're getting such although it's a thousand dollars it is an investment in what you're doing mm-hmm. as a musician and it comes with the microphone preamp too oh, so so it's a no-brainer yeah it re- like long, honestly if you're thinking long term yeah, if you're thinking long term, like for me, I literally every time I record it, I'm always blown away. I'm like, I can't believe because I the thing is, I work in a studio that has all the real microphones that this models. Yeah. And like every time I use the whole some, cabinet. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, man, this thing is like, it's so crazy good. Like. And I'm, I'm not getting paid anything by them. I'm not sponsored. <laughs> I, like I paid full price for mine. Yeah, yeah. But it just it blows my mind the technology we have available to us. It's just, you know, just like everyone uses plugins nowadays. We're, we're used to using plugins. What most people don't realize is back in the day to mix a record, you know, using all the plugins we use in the computer, in the DAW, you would have a, have a studio that cost half a million to a million dollars. Oh, yeah. Just to recreate what that is. Yeah. And microphones have just gotten to that point now. Yeah. So I think the Slate is one of the forefront. There's another one called the Townsend, that uh, Universal Audio. Kind of, it's the same idea. Yeah. Uh, I haven't used it, but I've heard good things. Um as far as ribbon mics go, usually they're a little bit more expensive. The Coles 4038 is just like, it's the ultimate, in my opinion. Um, you can get, um, I mean, Royer 121s are great. I don't like them as much on, on. Um, they're not as dark mm-hmm. as the Coles 4038s. They're great on guitars and certain other things, but usually for horns, the 4038 is like my holy grail, mixed with a condenser. Um but if you do want a cheap alternative, the Cascade Fatheads, I think, are about 300 bucks. Um, I don't have any, but I just know I have a few friends that just rave about them. And, like, I'm sure they're, you know, they may be not. It's kind of the thing where they're 80% is good. But, like, yeah. for 300 bucks, you can't really go Well, wrong. it's worth considering, too. I mean, I know that we're talking about some pretty high-priced things here. But look at your clarinet. It's probably worth three to $10,000. Yeah. Are you really going to record it through something you bought at the dollar store for yeah. 15 you know, you yeah. give it the give it the yeah. give the recording element the artistic sort of presence it deserves. I guess is sort of. And I will say too, with recording gear, the well, the instrument and the performance is the most important. But after that, the microphone is by far the most important. You yeah. can, you know, I for I kind of went through a geek phase where I, you know, went through different microphone preamps and different compressors and different EQs and yeah, you can go down that rabbit hole. But at the end of the day, the mic makes the biggest difference. Yeah. And then the room you're performing in. If the room has a bunch of problems and, you know, it has all this flutter echo or like, you know, it sounds boxy or whatever, you're probably better off spent spending money treating your room than you are buying a better mic. Especially when really you can treat your room for like a hundred or two hundred dollars. Yeah. At least. And I, if you're in an apartment and you can't really put anything on the walls, get one of those, you know, the halos or the, the things that wrap around the mic. That'll help. Um, and then, you know, the biggest thing, though, is microphone placement. You can have a great sounding mic, and if it's in the wrong place, it'll sound like crap. Yeah, yeah, totally. So, 
Well, yeah, that's all some really amazing stuff. And, you know, I realized that before we wrap up here, just I forgot to actually ask you about OCL, the place where you're currently working. So tell me just a little bit about it and then we will do the lightning round, which is the last part of okay. the, the podcast here. So well, OCL uh, st- stemmed from this guy named Dan Owen, who's uh, an amazing kind of music. Th- I can never say this word. Philanthropist. Thank you. <laughs> such, such a tongue twister. I mean, he's he's just has a passion for music. He loves he loves music. He's actually quite a good drummer as well. But he you know he he makes his living in the construction business. Mm-hmm. But he built this studio and this basically this musical hub for people um, in just outside of Calgary. Um, and yeah, he you know he's poured millions into this place. It's beautiful. It's like it's, it's completely you know per, you know designed by a professional studio designer. It's got a Neve console. It's um, which Neve, like if you're a gear geek, Neve is like the holy grail of consoles. The microphone locker is ridiculous. Like I was saying, you know, the Slate microphone that models all the mics, he has all the real mics. Yeah. Um, and, you know, just dozens of them. <laughs> well, it's ba- the whole place is basically, uh, it's out of town in Calgary here. It's basically a mansion. I mean, I remember when I rented yeah. it to do the recording there with the help of that Alberta Foundation of the Arts grant. Um it was clearly meant for a bigger band than just me and the marimba player. Right. <laughs> yeah. The, the producer didn't even stay out there. So us two, uh, the marimbaist and I had this whole house to ourselves yeah. for like the, the three days we were recording and it was, it was pretty interesting. Um, but, uh, so what kind of projects have recently been done there in the Canadian music scene? Well, I mean, in the country scene, George Canyon just did his record there. Yeah. Um, uh, we did some stuff. Well, this is more country. Brett Kissel. Do these people stay there too when they're recording? Uh, they... Yeah, usually. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not every artist does, but most of them do stay out there. Um, yeah. Brett Kissel. We did some stuff there. Uh, Leaving Thomas. More country stuff. The pop world. Like I've been working a lot with Jocelyn Ellis. Um, Ruben Young. Well, Karen, congratulations though. You've got like three songs in the top 25 right now or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> is that what it is? Yeah, is it one of the ones just went top 10, too. Top 10? Yeah. My God. So, yeah, you're really into the... Yeah. And, I mean, yeah, from the, I mean, from the jazz point of view, I mean, pretty much everyone around the Calgary scene, you know, all the, the heavy hitters, they've all done their records there over the last couple of years. It's quite affordable, too. That's You'd yeah. expect that it would cost a lot more than it does. And well, because I, mean, I was worried at first, too, like, oh, we want to, you know, what if we did record it at a different place, like a church or something, maybe it'd be more, you know, authentic or whatever, but... And then I was looking at the capabilities of the place. Now it was just, yeah, uh, it was unbelievable. Something like that was so close to home. Yeah. yeah. So we're really fortunate. And we are very fortunate. Yeah. So shout out to Dan Owen for creating Absolutely. and his daughter, Mago, and actually uh, manages the studio. And there's, there's just, also a concert space upstairs. There right? is. Yeah, I know. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing. But amazing. We're very lucky to have them. I mean, even just in Canada in general, it's one of the top studios in Canada. And the fact that they've made it affordable for artists that they can come and stay there. He's really created a you know he's he's helping foster the music community like very few have yeah absolutely so well actually you know who i was thinking i saw a duo perform on the weekend cornell wolak who's going to be a podcast guest i'm talking to him tomorrow actually but he played with an accordion player in air during the weekend he's going to be living i think out in victoria but i all i could think is they did a a really amazing duo performance and i was like they should do their next album Mm. so i'll 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 spread the word i'll tell him but i know he listens actually so maybe he'll We'll hear that and and head out here one time. But But yeah, thank you, Spencer, so much for taking the time to come on today. Thanks for having me, Sean. um, Before we wrap up, though, I have these lightning round questions, which 
ask every guest, and they're all meant to be answered in under a minute, but they're kind of clarinet based. So I'm going to try and adapt okay. them as I as I go here. <laughs> before you know, before we do that, though, is there anything else you want to add? I don't know. I think I mean I think the main thing with recording is uh, it's very easy to get caught up in the gear. Yeah, but it's just like playing an instrument. It doesn't matter how good the instrument is. It's all comes down to the person using it. Yeah. You could have the best clarinet player in the world playing a student model clarinet and it's still going to sound great. Yeah. Same thing with recording. You could have the worst mics in the world, but if the guy knows how to use them and he knows how to position them properly and, you know, get the artist in the right headspace, you can get a much better recording. So I think don't get too worried about the gear. It's more about getting your skills up as a player and and your engineering skills, knowing where to place the mic and, you know, how to treat your room and how to properly capture everything. Well, as, as someone who's worked with someone like Spencer, um, or literally with Spencer, um, I would say to people listening to let the professionals do their job. Like if you've hired a producer or an engineer or whatever, you have to trust them to do what they do. Because like, again, right. like I said, watching you work, like you're the Martin Frost, who's a famous kind of player of the, the mixing console. Like right. it was, <laughs> it was really incredible. And, and, and uh, you got to just let people do what they do. And even today, this conversation, I know that for anyone listening, who's, mostly done their their studying of clarinet or something we did go through a lot of jargon and things you might want to listen to this episode twice to to right. kind of get it all but that's because this is what you do there's right. no reason for you as a clarinetist to dive this deep into the gear like in some yeah. instances you got to just let someone yeah that's what you're paying for let them do the job and make the the, the painting with your music i guess <laughs> totally yeah and i mean it can be a very collaborative thing but yeah almost, yeah of course you know, I mean, I don't want to ever compare myself to a lawyer, but, heaven forbid, but you know, we don't necessarily understand the law like they understand. And you go to get advice and you yeah. trust them and you work with them and you, you know, or you go to your doctor and you say, doctor, like, what do I got to, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's it's a professional. You're hiring a professional service to help you along with something. And you don't necessarily need to know everything they know. You just need to know this is what I want. How do I get it? And if they're really good at their job, the engineer producer will help you get there. Yeah. Find your goal. So, yeah. No, I think it's an amazing, amazing field that you do. And uh, I'm super, I, I find it super interesting. And I think that this, this uh, information you shared today will really help shed light on it for so many clarinetists all around the world. And I have a feeling this will be an episode that hopefully branches out of the clarinet community because there's so much value in here and right. try and share it far and wide. So cool. Anyways, here's the lightning round. Finally, um, if I were to walk over to your, I usually say music stand, but your mixing console or mm-hmm. editing booth here um, right now, what would I find on it? What are you working on? Oh, well, I'm besides the bottle of wine, <laughs> right? Yeah, besides the wine, I'm working on, uh, there's a band called walk off the earth. Okay. They're, they're pretty big in Canada. Yeah. Um, I'm working on the, the lead singer solo record. Yeah. Um, I'm also working on, I just finished Sheldon Zambor's, uh, piano player jazz record. Uh, oh, he's doing a solo album too. Yeah. Oh, cool. I, uh, finishing up a couple of singles for leaving Thomas, who's like a pop country duo. Uh, I did a hip hop track today for I actually don't even know the guy's name. <laughs> Sometimes I just get sent files to mix for yeah. It's yeah. like it's a mixed bag. Every day is completely different. Well, you're mostly mixing now. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm just We're mixing. almost all mixing now, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's a tiny bit of production still, but it's you know 95% mixing. Yeah. So the next question is what piece of music or album changed your night your life indefinitely? Definitely uh continuum. Oh, by John uh, John Mayer or or try the live trio version. But I remember being 18. I was kind of a weird kid. And when I was in high school, I only listened to jazz music and big band. And when I was 18, I remember my friend took me out for lunch and we, you know, 
only a few kids at that time had a car and he had a car. We went to get pizza or McDonald's, who knows, whatever for lunch. And he had the CD on the car and it was John Mayer and Steve Jordan was playing drums. And it was like, you know, rock and roll, but not not like hard rock. It was like kind of singer songwriter rock and blues. But like it just it's like, what is this music? This is incredible. And mm-hmm. yeah, Continuum is my favorite record of all time. Really? It's, yeah. it's your kid A. Am I kid A for me? <laughs> and that's why, that you know, the, the, the two guys I mentioned, Manny yeah. Merrick and Michael Brower, the mixers that I got to study with. The reason why I went to study with them is because they both mixed that record. Oh, wow. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah, you've really, uh, you've reached some really amazing <laughs> levels with your interest for this stuff. You know, well, when, when you listen to that album, did you ever think that you'd be doing that? No, that's a thing. Yeah, I never, never thought I would get to meet those guys or yeah. you know pick their brains. But yeah, yeah. that's pretty cool. That's amazing. Um, if you could play, well, I think you might have answered this already at the beginning. But if you could play any other instrument than the one you currently play, which I guess we'll say is drums, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which would it be and why? Definitely piano, just because at least in my world and when you're producing it, it can be the most flexible because you can you mm-hmm. know trigger other sounds from the piano. I also feel like just being able to play a more chordal based instrument would be good because growing up playing classical violin, it was mostly, you know, single notes and I'm yeah, playing yeah. the melodies and not necessarily playing chords. So I think it would be nice to be able to play a chordal instrument. So either that or guitar, but yeah, probably the piano. Is a clarinet podcast is that your final answer? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, clarinet is so great. <laughs> it's got to be clarinet or I don't air the interview. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> If you could go back in time to meet any person, who would it be and why? Musical person. Ooh, that's a good one. That's a real good one. Could be a recent modern person, I guess, but usually that person is in the past who you couldn't meet. Right, who you couldn't meet. Um, I think if I was going on drums, I just think because it would be so interesting, I would love to meet Buddy Rich. No. I think he was such a character. He was such a great drummer. And I think he was just one of those natural savants. Of, you know, he never got taught drums. He just did it. And I think it would be interesting to just talk to him about what his life, you know, what how he thought about life and music. Because I think his life was so different than most people's. He was playing in vaudeville when he was like, you know, a toddler, basically. Yeah. And just seeing his view on all of it. Yeah. Talking to him would be quite interesting, I think. I was expecting some sort of studio guru or... I think uh, the thing is, most of the studio gurus are all alive. Yeah, recent, yeah, recording yeah. is a pretty recent thing. Like, I mean, yeah, they were recording in the you know twenties, thirties, forties, fifties, sixties. But recording was so basically, it was basic back then. There was not much you could do. There, you know, there wasn't the tools just weren't available compared to now. And I mean, I guess part of it's because I did get to go study with my heroes already. I did get to yeah, ask yeah. them and. Lucky in that way. Yeah, yeah. It's so I mean, lucky. it's crazy considering how they changed the world through music. Like yeah. they're basically the Steve Jobs and the Bill Gates of the music industry. They are the yeah, you know yeah. the, the kingpins. Like they they're the, the Picassos. They're the yeah. You know, uh, trying to think about other industries, but they're basically the top of the top of the top. And I yeah. and I did get to pick their brains. So I think I you know I already got to do that, and it's pretty yeah. cool. That is awesome. <laughs> Well, we're back in time. What advice would you give your 21-year-old self? Um, Reaching I, deep here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. I think be, you know, just be patient. Like, I, I always want stuff to happen like that. And, you know, it, there's a good good side of that where it's like you're always hustling. You're always, you know, trying to improve. But sometimes I think I might get ahead of myself. And it's just to slow down and enjoy life and enjoy enjoy the process. Yeah. 
and wise advice. Sometimes enjoy the simple things too in life. Like, you know, sometimes the best, the best things in life is just having dinner with your parents or like having dinner with your family and just hanging, yeah, not having a meal. Needs to be... Not everything needs to be extravagant. And like, I've got to do some pretty amazing extravagant things and it's great. There's nothing wrong with it, but sometimes the purest joys in life are just spending time with the ones you love. I love that. Yeah. Wish we could end there because it was a great ending. But <laughs> well, I got one more question. <laughs> and I'm going to ask it uh, straight on, straight as it is, just because I'm interested. How many clarinets do you own? <laughs> well, is it zero? It is zero. Although, you know what? I have a lot of clarinet samples. So. Oh, yeah. You, in a way, you kind of own a lot of clarinet, <laughs> clarinetists. No? Yeah, but they're not as good as the real thing. So. so let's change it then. How many mics do you think you might own? Well, now, right now, I actually only own one microphone. because The slate here? The slate, because wow. it's so versatile. And because I'm mostly just mixing now, There, I really only use it for doing, you know, vocal overdubs or the odd, you know, overdub, essentially. Um, well, working at OCL, you have access yeah, to I have cabinets, a huge so. mic locker. I mean, I sold them most of my mics, so. Well, I can say I own more mics than you then. There you go. That's pretty cool. <laughs> I have a lot of speakers, though. Yeah, you have a bit of a speaker. I see some new speakers from last time I was here. I know. And I, uh, yeah, I'm going through a bit of a yeah speaker collection. Yeah. <laughs> I have well, a lot of plugins, too. Yeah, yeah. Digital stuff. Yeah. I guess that's a thing now. So And a lot of wine. Yeah. <laughs> Not anymore. We're running out of Yeah, yeah. We're running out. So yeah, thanks, Spencer, so much for this conversation. I really hope people get value from it. And uh, do check out OCL Studios and some of the great uh, records that Spencer's been working on throughout the years. And um, even the one I had the chance to record with him, I hope you have the chance to listen to at some point. Um, maybe what I'll do, too, is uh, get you to send some samples along, if that would be okay, of some yeah. different sounds we could include throughout this Of course. This, yeah, uh, episode. definitely. And, uh, but yeah, thanks so much. This is a great conversation. Thanks for having me, Sean. for listening to today's episode of the Clarinet Podcast. If you're interested in learning more about what we discussed on today's show, please head to www.clarinet.com for detailed show notes. The podcast is brought to you in part by the support of its listeners. If you'd like to learn how you can help out for as little as $1 a month, maybe treat the podcast like an extra read once a month or once a week if it's adding value to your life as a clarinetist, head to clarinet.com support to learn more. Of course, the show is also brought to you by our season sponsor, Dario Woodwinds. Thank you so much for listening. Sanding, shaping, balancing. For centuries, mastering your instrument meant mastering these crafts too. But now, Dario is refining craftsmanship for the 21st century by refining their reeds and mouthpieces with the world's most innovative techniques. So you can spend less time sanding, shaping, and balancing, and more time perfecting your own craft. To learn more about the new era of craftsmanship from Diderio Woodwinds, visit diderio.com slash woodwinds.